I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 9th, 2021. Coming up, an interview with Cobar CEO Steve Engel. His company is exploring a novel COVID treatment based on mitochondrial health. I recorded this interview for last week's show, but due to technical difficulties then, you can finally hear it today. First, a COVID vaccine update. In Boulder, like many other places, delivery of the two mRNA vaccines is spotty at best. One problem with these vaccines, as I've discussed on the show in the past, is that they have to be stored at really cold temperatures because the RNA is a really unstable compound. Three other vaccines in development may alleviate this delivery and storage problem. Two of these use the more stable DNA instruction to build the viral spike protein. Recall that the mRNA vaccine is also an instruction to the cell to build the spike protein, which our immune system can then recognize as foreign and mount an offense against it. You may have heard about one of these vaccines developed by the British company AstraZeneca in collaboration with scientists at Oxford. Britain authorized the vaccine for emergency use in December, and India and the EU authorized its use this month. In this vaccine, the gene for the coronavirus spike protein was inserted into a different virus called an adenovirus. Adenoviruses are common viruses that typically cause colds or flu-like symptoms. The Oxford-AstraZeneca team used a modified adenovirus, which can enter cells, but importantly, it can't replicate or make copies of itself. After the vaccine is injected into a person's arm, the adenoviruses bump into cells and glom onto proteins on the cell surface. The cell engulfs the virus in a bubble and pulls it inside. Once inside, the adenovirus escapes from the bubble and travels to the nucleus, where the cell's DNA is stored. The adenovirus pushes its DNA into the nucleus. Remember that the adenovirus is engineered so it can't make copies of itself, but the gene for the coronavirus spike protein can be read by the cell and copied into a molecule called messenger RNA, or mRNA. Of course, mRNA is what is used by the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. In the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, the cell makes the mRNA from the DNA that you get in the vaccine. Then, the cell follows the instructions in the mRNA to make the COVID spike protein. Some of the spike proteins made in your cell then migrate to the cell surface and stick out of the cell. The vaccinated cells can also break up some of these proteins into littler pieces, which they also place on the outer membrane, kind of like a post-it note. These protruding spikes and spike protein fragments can then be recognized by the immune system. The adenovirus also provokes the immune system by switching on the cell's alarm systems. The infected cell, well, that is the cell that's got the virus in it, sends out warning signals to activate immune cells nearby. By raising this alarm, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine causes the immune system to react more strongly to the spike proteins. Johnson & Johnson is testing a similar vaccine using a different adenovirus to deliver the DNA instructions for the spike protein to our cells. Unlike the other leading vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine involves one dose, not two. And remember, these adenovirus vaccines can be stored in a normal refrigerator for months, making their delivery logistics much easier. 
Early results from clinical trials around the world show that this vaccine is not quite as effective as preventing disease as the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. Even more troubling results from South Africa suggest that the Johnson & Johnson candidate is less effective in protecting against the viral variant in that country, which just showed up here in the U.S. last week. On the other hand, the trial results did show that this vaccine was quite good, about 85% effective in preventing severe disease everywhere. The third vaccine in the pipeline is being produced by an American company called Novavax. This vaccine delivers the coronavirus spike protein direct to your cells and it can be stored in a standard refrigerator. The purified protein in the vaccine cannot replicate and cannot cause COVID-19. The vaccine also contains something called an adjuvant, which are added to most vaccines, including the mRNA vaccines. Adjuvants are additives that enhance the immune system responses to vaccines. Preliminary clinical trials results on this vaccine are encouraging. In the UK, it was almost as effective at 90% as the mRNA vaccines in preventing symptoms. It was only slightly less effective, about 85%, at protecting against the new variant that popped up in the UK this fall. Well, there's lots of data that's come out on these vaccine alternatives, and because there are now alternatives, we have options, if we can only get them. Bottom line, the mRNA vaccines still look the best, but if I can't get one of those, I would take any of these based on current efficacy and safety data. Steve Engel is Chief Executive Officer and Director of Cobar Incorporated, a biotechnology company developing mitochondria-based therapeutics to treat chronic diseases and extend healthy lifespan. The company's lead compound is in early-stage clinical trials for fatty liver disease and obesity. They also have four preclinical programs, two in cancer, one in fibrotic diseases, and one in COVID-19 associated with severe respiratory disease and type 2 diabetes. Welcome to the show, Steve. It's a delight to talk to you about mitochondria today. Thanks, Beth. So before we jump into talking about these esoteric little things that we all have in our cells, I'm going to um, put out a teaser for our listeners. We are eventually going to get into um, discussion of the application of this startup company to coronavirus. But before we do that, we're going to have to talk about mitochondria. So Steve, do you want to give us a little introduction to what mitochondria are and why you're interested in them? Yes. So the mitochondria exists in every, virtually every cell in your body. And we know them historically as the powerhouse of the cells. So if they're not working right, it's a bad day. And you can think of some diseases as basically the result of a brownout in your mitochondria. Um, and mitochondria, are, are there more of them in your heart and in your brain? Why? Because this is where you really got to do the work, and that's where you need more energy. They're also in your immune system. So if they get damaged, you may have trouble fighting off diseases. So that's what we've known for years now. But in the more recent period, what was discovered by Kobar's uh, founders is the idea that in the genome of the mitochondria, and the mitochondria has its own, that's, that's how interesting a background we have with it, 
Um, in that genome, there are a number of sequences which can generate peptides. And what's the new discovery here is not only do they exist inside the genome of the mitochondria, but they leave the mitochondria and they actually control other organs in the body. So this is a stunner for two reasons. First of all, that there are these peptide sequences. And secondly, that they're released out into the body to control multiple organs. And this was discovered by our founders about 20 years ago and is just revolutionary in our thought process that mitochondria are not only generating energy, but they're actually sending out these peptides to control different organs. So they're very interesting in the body. And of course, if they're not working right, all sorts of problems can occur. We've seen a little of this. Uh, some people hypothesize the reason why people get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or cardiovascular disease is because basically their mitochondria uh, are dysfunctional. They're not working well. And so what you're seeing in a person with Alzheimer's, for example, may be a brownout of the brain. So it's uh, very, very interesting how important this, uh, these mitochondria are to our system. So before we go on, I got to give a little background to the listener. Um, just a refresher course in basic biology. The mitochondria are tiny little structures in the cell and all of our cells have them, like Steve was just saying. And in fact, some cells that require a lot of energy like heart and brain cells can have thousands of these little things working away. And they're like, like he said, they're like little power stations. But because they came from an ancient evolutionary event in which a bacteria moved into another bacterial cell and set up this symbiotic codependent relationship, the mitochondria, which of course came from that invading bacteria, has their own DNA. Now, this is an amazing story to me because over the billions of years that our cells have been co-evolving with mitochondria, mitochondria have gotten rid of a lot of their genes. And so they've only hung on to a very small number of their genes that they require on a daily basis for their metabolism. But now, as, as some people may remember and some people may not, the genes, which are made up of something called DNA, code for proteins. So these peptides that Steve is talking about, those are short pieces of a protein. Think about a protein being something built up out of Legos and the individual peptides could be like just a short stack of Legos that go together to build up a bigger individual protein. So that's just a, a little basic primer on the mitochondria and their genes and their peptides. So now we can talk about the roles of some of those peptides because this is really amazing what you're saying, Steve. This is really new biology that those peptides that the mitochondria produce can actually pull the levers of the whole cell and therefore of our whole organism. So it's kind of stunning to think that we are controlled by these little mitochondria. Exactly. And, you know, <laughs> you can't ascribe intelligence, but uh, <laughs> and I think people miss the idea. They're probably one of the key points between what we call genetics and epigenetics. How does the environment interact with us? How do we sense that? And certainly one of the ways is the way mitochondria sense it either by the foods we eat, the amount of sunshine, 
the kind you know the water we get and so forth. But the idea then that they use that and generate these signals, control things in the body is, is truly fantastic. By the way, it was a great summary that you did. And I just wanted to add one thing for, for people, which is your mitochondria are inherited through the maternal line. So as you think about what's going on in your life, um, you, you need to look back at your mom and your grandma and uh, how they did and so forth uh, is a very interesting indicator of how well you may do. Uh, my grandmother lived to 101. Uh, that certainly is an interesting signal for me in terms of my mitochondria. That's a really interesting point, Steve, because there's a lot of evidence showing that our longevity has a substantial genetic input. And I think not a lot of people have looked at mitochondrial genes in terms of making that relationship. Yeah, exactly. Dan Wallace's work, and he was one of the earliest um, to do this, uh, indicates that the damage to the DNA or even from a starting point, the original DNA that you inherit has a major impact on the onset of, of diseases. And he's shown it in animal models. And it's quite remarkable to see that a partial uh, damage, a single SNP versus uh, both sides of the gene can take you from a slight problem at the age of 20 for a mouse to death at that same age if there's a major problem. So there's this interconnect genetically as to what's going on with our mitochondria, but there's also an interconnect, so that's the starting point, but there's this interconnect with the epigenetics and how we're actually running them, which gets back to some of your previous uh, podcasts where you were talking about um, ketones and so forth and how the system's operating and it explains uh, why not just that these are critical in generating energy, but the whole discussion of moving from uh, glucose adapted to fat adapted that many people have been learning about, the pivotal organ in that is the mitochondria. So uh, to go forward on your point about these peptides, we know from reports uh, that have been published that these peptides have effects in metabolism, uh, diabetes and those kinds of diseases. They have effects in oncology, uh, cancer and so forth, as well as longevity. Um, and so that information's out there. What my company, Kovar, is doing is we're taking these sequences and we're developing uh, compounds out of them that can be used as new therapies. And so we currently have a clinical study ongoing in the area of NASH and obesity to uh, create a compound that would be able to help uh, patients uh, and, and subjects with those kinds of problems. We're also though looking at multiple other areas. Um, one of our um, peptides is showing positive effects in, <clears throat> in an antifibrotic way you may not know, but fibrosis is um, one of the key problems that occurs in an in-stage uh, situation for patients and people. And so it's very important to be able to control it or even reverse it. And we also have a compound in the COVID 
um, ARDS area. This is the pulmonary lung disease we hear so much about. And a third uh, program that we're taking forward in the uh, pre at preclinical level in the area of oncology. And so what's fascinating, I think, is imagine that you have 100 keys up on the wall because we've identified 100 uh, around there of uh, these sequences, these peptide sequences. So imagine 100 keys up on the wall and we're taking them down one by one and testing them in biological locks to see what effects they're having. And already in these five programs, uh, we've found amazing kinds of results, um, functions of these peptides that nobody knew existed. And we think this will not only result in additional therapies, but will also um, open up entirely new approaches to diseases. Yeah, and it sounds like you have a lot in your pipeline. And um, so can we talk about a few of those specific diseases? Like the, sure. the, the peptide that you have furthest along in development is targeted towards the brain. Is that correct? Uh, for national obesity. This is fatty liver disease on the one side. And of course, obesity, everybody pretty much knows. Um, the issue with that, of course, is that most people don't know they have it. The fact that we're having an epidemic of obesity uh, means that we, also, we have a lot more of NASH uh, going on in the population. Right, and so let me just interrupt. For the listener that doesn't know that acronym, it's non-alcoholic fatty, oh, I'm, I was going to say fatty liver disease, but that's not quite right, is it? No, it's um, non-alcoholic steatosis hepatitis. Not easy to remember. Thank you. Uh, yeah. But it means your liver is getting fat. And what happens is it's kind of like when you fail to clean out your house and you just keep putting more and more stuff in it, like some of us do, right. uh, soon you can't move. And you're like a hoarder. Well, what's happening in the NASH area is that there's too much fat in the cells of your liver and it is reducing the ability of those cells to work, which can have very um, problematic effects. Right. And so it sounds like you have an animal model for this. And by treating the animals with various peptides, you can reverse the course of the disease? Right. So we, we have, uh, there are animal models. Um, and so they're out there. And we've used this compound um, both to improve the outcome with the mice in terms of the fat being available, in terms of their weight, um, and, and just generally how the cells get affected. And we've also shown that it works well with existing compounds. There's a synergy. And so, you know, you, you always want to have an active compound, but what we're talking about also has this synergy with some of the commonly used compounds in patients with NASH. Um, and so we've shown that in multiple studies now at the preclinical level. And that makes perfect sense to me that there would be that synergy because the role of the mitochondria is so elemental in cells at regulating metabolism and metabolism is the basis for everything that goes on in our body. So then that kind of segues into the application for one of your peptides in treating COVID because the, again, it, it could work on its own to upregulate the mitochondria in the immune system, but it could also work to facilitate the actions of other drugs. Yeah, so, so this is a different 
uh, peptide now we're talking about for the COVID area, one of our uh, founders, uh, Dr. Cohen, has actually shown that COVID has a direct impact on mitochondria, which is very, very interesting. This is hot off the presses just in the last couple of weeks. Um, what we're doing is we've, again, found the sequence inside the mitochondrial genome. We've generated a peptide, and we have used this uh, in animal models uh, for the ARDS, which is this uh, pulmonary disease that everybody talks about. You end up with too much fluid in your lungs. You can end up with thrombosis and so forth. And this peptide, when it's put into the animal model, ends up reducing the amount of fluids in the lungs and reducing the um, problems in terms of thrombosis, sepsis, and other areas. So it's kind of an amazing finding. And again, you know, this is, this is a stunner. Nobody thought that there would be a peptide inside the mitochondrial genome that would have that effect. It also says the mitochondria really are affecting uh, multiple systems in the body. Right, and I wonder if that could explain part of the long-term effects or sequela of the COVID infection, that it has this deleterious effect on some people's mitochondria. Could you explain briefly, or is that even known exactly what the virus effect on the mitochondria is? Well, what uh, Dr. Cohen shown is uh, that uh, this causes, COVID causes a dramatic change and an impairment in the genes that regulate mitochondrial function. And so the implication is that um, since these are so essential, that energy production may be affected. And also, you know, even the first line of defense against the virus uh, through, you know, the innate immune system or otherwise may be affected. And this is early days with the research, but it's, it's fascinating that COVID could have that particular effect because it might explain why people are exhausted uh, exactly. from the disease and why even when it's over, as you were alluding to, we're seeing these post-COVID problems including uh, the inability to catch your breath when you're working out or you're, you're doing what were common activities, but your lungs just aren't functioning as well as they did previously. And nobody knows exactly how long this is going to last in people or you know, how bad it will be. But um, you know, the line of research now is being drawn to the mitochondria to these kinds of effects. Right, so it's really exciting that you have some peptides in your pipeline that could really help to ameliorate that. And I saw in, a, in your recent paper that came out um, just last month, I think it was, that um, there are some clinical trials in, yeah. in the pipeline that you are collaborating with NIH to set up. That's right. Um, we have just signed a collaboration with the National Institute of Health, in particular the NIAID group, uh, who are running uh, the COVID-type studies. And they have a COVID animal model. Um, it is the uh, hamster, called the golden hamster model. And um, they are going to use our compound in that model. Now, we've run it in regular, uh, what they call ARDS animal models, and already shown positive effects. 
And so we're expecting positive outcomes from this, but uh, it's great to have their help and to have access to this uh, specific model uh, for the impact of COVID. And so we're excited about that. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. So before I let you go, um, one of my long-term interests in the field of biology is in aging. And so I wonder if you could talk briefly about some of your peptides that might have um, a mitigating effect on some of the de deleterious um, diseases of aging. Sure, so we won't be surprised if we find something specific. Uh, one of the early peptides that was identified called humanin, uh, clearly in the animal models, has an anti-aging type effect in the model. And we believe, as many uh, researchers do, that if you look at the aging area, that there are basically six or seven pillars, as they call them, of key um, technology areas. One of those, everybody agrees, is mitochondria. And so when your mitochondria is not working well, you're going to have problems. And if it goes down over time, which it does in, in the average person, you're going to see problems uh, in terms of your aging process. So our expectation is we will find peptides uh, that will have positive effects in this area. Of course, we still have to show that. Um, but the door is, is very much open to that based on A, the, the original discovery of humanin and its effect on the animal models, and B, because there are so many of these peptides, we're not going to be surprised to find one uh, that works in that area. So, you know, and I think in general, if you imagine improving your mitochondria, that's going to help with what we all call health span now, which is nobody wants to be uh, sick when they're, as they get older, they want to be healthy. And so the idea of improving uh, the mitochondria, of getting rid of the dysfunction is bound to be um, a, a help in achieving a longer health span. Right. And I, for one, am going to be following this research really closely and looking forward to some new breakthroughs coming out of this area. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for now, Steve. Thank you so much for talking. And I will provide a link to the company website in the show notes for people that want to pursue it a little bit more. That was Steve Engel, CEO of Cobar, a biotechnology company developing mitochondrial-based therapeutics for a variety of chronic diseases. They've recently partnered with NIH to develop one candidate therapy for COVID-19. To find out more, you can visit their website, which I link to in the show notes on the How on Earth website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the current executive producer, and I produced this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, additional music from Berlin. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.